Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in, and I want to discuss some some big picture stuff because we're we're at a very interesting moment in the year, and uh, and we're ready to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. This is uh, the days before um, the holiday of Shavuos, and it, it's funny because. Um, you know, the sort of climactic moment in Jewish history is receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. And of course, Shavuos is the name of that holiday. And it's, it's sort of um, emblematic um, uh, of the zeitgeist. Boy, that's a lot of syllables all at once. Um, that, that, that this is probably the least known holiday. You know, Shavuos, people know Sukkot, Right? Sukkot, right? They know Pesach, Passover, certainly. Everyone knows Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. But Shavuos, even people who are, you know, somewhat worldly and knowledgeable, they, they don't know the name of that holiday. And this is the holiday where we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. And so if you want sort of a window into where kind of we're holding um, religiously as a people, that, that's a very interesting window to, to kind of see a sort of a, just as a barometer of where the Jewish people are holding spiritually. Because Mount Sinai represents truth. And it represents um, ultimate truth and objective reality. That, that's what it's always meant to us. That there's a God and he has a particular vision, a particular desire for his creation, the world, and us. And so... Um, we live in a world, so, so why is this the least known holiday? Because, r- rightly or wrongly, just stating facts, um, we live in a world right now where everyone wants to um, be the, the final arbiter. And everyone wants to feel as though truth, the definition of truth is what I decide truth is. And, by the way, that's true to a certain extent, because there is sort of this link between one's perception and one's reality. So the example that I always like to give is that if it's sort of like a kind of a very disheveled, kind of dirty looking person, you know, you know, with some bags, you know, clutched close to him, sat down in the room, you know, maybe you'd feel a little bit uncomfortable around him or not talk to him or something like this. But if I... Um, told you, that guy is a multi-multi-millionaire, you'd think, oh, he's an eccentric genius. <laughs> you know, why don't I say hello? Maybe I can strike up some sort of camaraderie with him and he'll fund my next project or something like this. <laughs> so you, the, the way that you look at him, your reality is completely linked to your perception. So, so for instance, so you can say, well, then really one does make up their own truth, and one does make up their own reality, and we are the final arbiters of truth, based on that. So so there is a a truth to that, there is a logic to that. But let me give you perhaps, I think, a a more comprehensive uh, example. Imagine you're, say, in the kitchen, and there's a room outside the kitchen, right? And and, uh, you can't see into that room, at least from where you're standing. So you're in the kitchen and you hear a noise, right? And you say, uh, it's, a, it's a, I don't know, I'm just making up this example, but you hear a noise and you, you think it's a monster, 
right? So I'm afraid. It's it's it, it's 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 a or it's a monster. It's a monster, right? But the the truth is is that it, it's it's not a monster. It's just like it's just a book that fell off a shelf, right? So so in other words, there is your individual reality, which is you're all afraid, and you're living that truth of fear because you're convinced that it's a monster. And so that is the truth for you. But what I'm suggesting is that beyond that, there's a greater reality, which, which is the truth whether you acknowledge it or not, which is that, no, that scary noise was just a book that fell off the shelf. So, so what I'm trying to suggest is that what the Torah represents, what it is, what we've believed it to be for thousands of years, what, what, what the Jewish people have stood for in terms of human history, is that there is an objective truth. And it's true, everyone can make up their own individual truths and even live them and believe them and fight to the death for them. But that all exists within a greater reality, which is objective truth. And so, so in our present zeitgeist, we're very uncomfortable with that. People, you know, people want to say, it is as I decide it to be, and just leave it at that. And so this is, this is a very interesting place where we are in terms of world history. Now I want to say something um, which is perhaps a counterbalance to this. And this is what I believe to be an emerging trend in, 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 in the world today. We, we talked about it a little bit yesterday. Which is that, and I think that we're just at the beginning stages of this new um, level of consciousness, which I think is coming down into the world now. And I think, but we've already entered into it, I believe. So what is this? What is this idea? You see, if you, if you look at, say, the last 100, 150 years, in terms of the advances that we've made, like if you say this is 150 years ago, and now here's where we are right now, the advances that we've made are so significant and so vast that it's, it's led to a certain level of arrogance. And some of that arrogance is very, very understandable, and even to the extent that you can say this, well-earned arrogance, because... The, the advances that we've made in all of the sciences, in all of technology, and, and in astronomy, is so radical that, that, that we can really honestly look at 100, 150 years ago as a time of complete ignorance, and a time of the present as total enlightenment. And we can rightly look at it in that way, in, in, in many respects. But, but unfortunately... This level of arrogance that we experience right now is, is a little bit misguided because we don't know everything. And now here's the new stage that I believe we've entered into. As I said, we've gone from relative ignorance to a real advanced state, right? But here's the interesting part. The pendulum completely continues to swing <laughs> this way meaning to say that we're finding out ever more things in our levels of advancement, and we have no idea what these new things mean. 
And so the cumulative effect is actually to humble us. Because now we're through, not through our ignorance, but through our advanced abilities, we're probing into new questions that we simply don't have the answers to yet. And that's very humbling. And, and it's a surprising turn of events because it's not, it's a, when we talk about the pendulum swinging, usually we go from here to here and then back to here. But that's not, that's not this dynamic. This model is we've gone from ignorance to great intellect to even greater intellect leading to a sense of ignorance. But it's a different form of ignorance. It's, it's a form of, I believe, great humility. And I believe that that great humility is setting the stage for a divine consciousness. Because at a certain point, we say, well, wait a second. We thought we knew everything. And now we're going, how can this possibly be? There can only be a God who's like orchestrating all of this. I mean, basically, through science and technology, we've gone from know-it-alls to this new stage that we're entering into where we're just blowing our own minds over the greatness of God and how infinite God must be. And the example that, that I keep on going back to, but I, I, I feel as though it just, just exactly illustrates this point, is about DNA. And after mapping the entire human genome, and by the way, I don't even know what that means, mapping the entire human genome, but it sounds good, and that's apparently what we've done. <laughs> there is some level of information, I guess DNA-based, I don't know, in all the parts of the body, which was like this magnificent, like climbing Mount Everest a hundred times type accomplishment that humanity did. And we finished the project. They, I remember reading it in the, in the paper. They threw a big press conference and they said, we're done, we did it, we mapped the human genome, right? And then a couple years after that, I don't know how long after that, they found out that in DNA, 5%, no, 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 the, the great majority of the DNA, which they, which they dismissed previously as, and this is their word, junk, they have now determined is the entire gateway and has all of the information and that they can't even begin to understand and unpack all of the information that's contained within them. And the head of the project, whether it was, he was either from MIT or Harvard, called it mind-blowing. And the difference from looking at like a map, you know, of like the United States or something like that, to the information contained there, which is like every street corner of every town. Like it was just dimensions beyond in detail. And so, and then one more discovery that I just read this week that they've now found new nuclei in atoms that are pear-shaped. And if you remember, without going through the whole thing, the great breakthrough in... in um, this is, this is my words, not, not what the article said, but just to perhaps give you a, a sense of what this might lead to. The great breakthrough in, in modern astronomy was done when they realized that the orbital patterns were not in the Aristotelian model of the perfect sphere or circle, but were actually in ellipses. Once they realized that that was going on, like all of modern astronomy takes place from, from that point on. 
Now they've discovered there are these pear-shaped nuclei. That not, they don't just have to be circular. So that seems to suggest, and they're very optimistic about that leading to entire new breakthroughs in terms of understanding you know, atomic theory and subatomic type you know, behaviors. So, so all of this, I believe, is coming to make us actually more humble. But it's the, this is, this is in Torah, we have a word for this type of humility. We call this yira. And this is, there are two types of yira. Yira, unfortunately, is um, translated in English as fear, as fear of God, which uh, negatively reinforces all of the worst aspects of religion, which is, you know, unfortunate. But, but there is actually lower yira and higher yira. And lower yira actually is fear of punishment. The sense that, wow, if I go against the master of the universe, then there will be negative consequences. That is genuine yira, but that's, that's the lower level of yira. Then there's the higher level of yira. The higher level of yira, and interestingly the, word, interestingly, the word yira contains the word for seeing. So the higher level of yira is actually, you're actually seeing God. Now God doesn't have any physicality. He doesn't have a body. He makes bodies, right? But nonetheless, it's a, it's a level of awareness where an English translation that would be closer fitting to it would be awe, where you're absolutely blown away by the magnificence of God. You're actually seeing the magnificence of God. And so I think that science is actually entering into this era of era. And, and, and that is a very beautiful thing because that's, a, that's basically all these different streams coming together. Where, where we're not turning to religion from a, from a superstitious standpoint or from a standpoint of fear, but we're turning to God with full knowledge and full awareness from the standpoint of awe. And that is, that is, a, great, that is a great era that, that is coming into effect. Um, you see, I think that um, one of the, one of the uh, bedrocks of, of uh, kind of, I think it's called scientism, which is when you take science and you believe in it to the point where you actually make a religion out of it. So that's actually a word in the dictionary, believe it or not. And if you look around and observe, you know, the world, you'll see that scientism is actually a, a very real movement. Scientists will be the last ones to refer to it as scientism, you know, because that, that reflects very negatively on, on, on themselves, you know, and it's not a very, it doesn't roll off the tongue exactly, so it hasn't, it hasn't quite caught on as a term, but, but it is actually in the dictionary. Um, but one of the bedrocks of scientism is that... Um, is this notion that things just evolved to be what they are. But if you actually look at how exceedingly complex the smallest elements of, of each of the organisms is, 
You know, I, I had recommended that you look up that TED Talk about pregnancy, where they, they show the imagery of it going from uh, a, just a, uh, an egg to a completed baby in like two minutes. It, you, you, did you see it? You, 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 watch, you watch a miracle happen in front of your eyes. There, there is no other way to describe it. You see, out of nowhere, a human being just pop up out of nowhere. It's like there is no human being. There's a human being. How did that happen? And we've talked about it many times, this whole idea that God plays a trick on us, that he does things that are so miraculous, but because he does them so slowly, we think that it's normal. But when you actually see the time compressed, and you just see like this tiny itty-bitty egg turn into a human being, you're like, okay, that was just magic. That's magic. So, so, so one of the bedrocks of scientism is this notion that, that everything just sort of through, um, uh, I've forgotten the term, but just that, just that everything evolved to be what it is, because that's, what, that's just what it is. But, okay, you know, maybe, maybe if you think of, um, like, uh, maybe you've seen movies of Jackson Pollock doing his drip paintings. So he puts out a canvas, and he lays it out on the floor, and he takes some paint, and he has a tube coming out of it, or some punctures like a, a hole in the can, or whatever it is, and then he kind of dances around, and he flows, and, and the paint splatters in every direction and everything like that, and then he takes another color and another color, and you see this, you know, I don't know if you like Jackson Pollock or not, but, you know, the... the, the his masterpieces are masterpieces. I mean, if you like modern art, I mean, they're amazing. And you see, oh, wow, it just kind of came together, you know? So, but imagine if Jackson Pollock had to make the exact same painting. <laughs> Trillions of times like that, and each painting actually had Trillions of parts. <laughs> and they had to work exactly in unison with each other in trillions of ways. Well, and it had to be right every single time. Exactly right every single time. See, that's the amazing thing about human beings. Each human being, there's all these there's zillions of different moving parts, zillions of different components, and they're all working harmoniously with each other in ways that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of yet. And it happens every single time with every single person. So, so, so the irony is that for someone who doesn't want to believe they have to believe so many more things are taking place just on the level of belief than someone who just says, ah, it's God. It's God. God does it. Next conversation. What are we having for lunch? Let's move on. You know what I mean? Whereas the other person, actually, if you break it down from point to point to point, has to believe, no, 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 this just kind of came into effect. And then this one just kind of came into effect because that was the best version of that. And then this one guy... 
Okay, have you got time to say that a trillion times? Because <laughs> I got an appointment, man. You know, and then it's going to ha- it's going to continue to happen, and then it's going to happen independently all by itself again over here, and again in China, and again in Nigeria. It's like at a certain point, this thing which presents itself in the garb of sophistication and knowledge, and let's be serious, and come on, please, come on, seems very silly in and of itself. And, and, and one, I, I, I would suggest one just has to be a little bit intellectually honest and open to see that point. You know, I've, I've, I've remarked before, but I'll just make the point before we move on, this, this idea that atheism is actually sort of comical, if you think about it. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, an agnostic is someone who goes, well, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't. I don't know. Atheism, an atheist, by definition, is someone who knows that God doesn't exist. Now, we've been talking about it the last few weeks, and, and I think it's actually my favorite talk of the year. If you want to look it up, if you haven't heard it, it's called What Math Says About God. And in that, we talk in, in great detail how God deliberately constructed the universe in such a way that he can't be proved. And so the point is, is that God, maybe you say that there is no God, but you can't prove that. Just like you can't prove that there is a God, you can't prove that there is no God. You can't prove that there is no God. And so an atheist standpoint is that I know that God doesn't exist. But here's where the comedy comes in, is that that requires an act of belief, because he can't prove that. So what he's saying is, I believe that God doesn't exist. Well, so then what's the difference between me and you? You're a believer and I'm a believer. (laughs) You believe God doesn't exist, I believe that God, you believe that God doesn't exist, I believe that God does exist. But then, here's really the funny part to me anyway, is that he says, no, I know that God doesn't exist which actually turns an atheist into a religious fanatic. They're religious fanatics because they can't know that. And yet anyone who's so wildly certain in their belief is certainly by their definition a fanatic. So that's a little bit of irony. Okay, so so we got on this topic because we're... I was just commenting, just from a cultural standpoint, it's just worth taking note of the fact that this holiday that we stand before, and right now, um, in terms of our history, we were encamped at Mount Sinai right now, and there was this beautiful thing that was taking place, which was perhaps unique in all of history. It says that we encamped at the mountain, and the Torah uses a the singular um, verb for encamped when really the plural would be more uh, appropriate since there were millions of people and we were all in the plural encamped. But the Torah uses the singular to say that we were encamped in one encampment and that a spirit of unity pervaded our people at this moment so that we were like one person with one heart. And this is an awesome, awesome state that we reached. 
like one person with one heart. This is before we receive the Torah. And, and that this Torah that we received represents objective truth. That this is actually the, the truth of the universe. And that while all of us might individually come up with our own subjective truths and believe them and even live them, which does create a type of truth to them, because that is, becomes our reality. Nonetheless, it's our reality within a greater truth which exists beyond us, which is the objective truth. And that this model, in terms of contemporary society, creates a tremendous amount of discomfort for people. Because as democracy has taken hold and the Enlightenment um, has taken hold all over the world, people have become increasingly empowered to believe that whatever I believe is the ultimate truth. But what I'm trying to show you is that there is no contradiction between you're saying I absolutely believe something and that actually becoming your truth, and yet the fact that it can be, can be in complete discordance with what is actually going on. You know, A person can sit at a baseball stadium and say, this is the worst Japanese restaurant I've ever been to. You know? What? What kind of service is this? <laughs> well, my friend, you're in a baseball stadium. <laughs> I've been sitting here half an hour, no one's even given me a menu. Because <laughs> you're in a baseball stadium. I'm never coming back to this restaurant again. <laughs> you know what? I love you, my friend. Just, just try to enjoy the game that's going on at least. You know? So... You, you can live in your own reality, but the goal is, ideally, to be in harmony with the ultimate reality. This would seem to me to be the greatest payoff. And that is what we say the Torah is. Okay. Now, I want to share with you, we started a new book. It's called Bamidbar. Um, which actually means in the desert. And what this is chronicling right now is the, the, our journeys through the desert on the way to Israel. And from Egypt to Israel. And I want to, be, because our, our, our travels from the desert to Israel is a microcosm of human history, because Egypt represents exile, Israel represents redemption, and so our travels through the desert are in miniature our entire road to the perfection of the world. And this is how all the Rebbes understand this. And they make an amazing insight. And I want to show you how you can actually see this in the word Babmidbar itself. Which is that at a certain point in Babmidbar, all of the stops we made in the desert are enumerated. And fascinatingly, there are 42 stops. Now, if you look at the word Bamidbar, which is the name of this book, it's spelled Bez Mem, Bez is 2, Mem is 40. That's 42. And Davar is, means things. So isn't it interesting that the book of Bamidbar, which is chronicling the 42 journeys, if you break it down, it actually means 42 things. 
That's, 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 that's interesting, okay? Not only that, but if you look in the Shema, Hashem says to us, He says, Vidibarta bam. Bam, the word bam, and there's dibor again, bamidbar, vidibarta bam. And these words of mine, bam is bezmem, which is also 42, which stands for, in that context, the entire Torah. So, so this 42 is our journeys through life, and it represents our journeys through the entire Torah. And in the context of the Shema, these words of mine you should put on your heart and you should live them and everything like that. But they're referred to as Bam, which is 42. And you see many 42s, by the way. By the way, the Jackie Robinson movie just came out, and that's 42, which is, Whoa. you know, just... I, that's in heavy parentheses, that point. But nonetheless, you know, everything is divinely orchestrated, and that was just released, so... Anyway, you see billboards all around town that have the big number 42 on them. But just a, a it's put an asterisk by that thought. But anyway, the, um, the point being that, uh, that Reb Shlomo also refers to this book very significantly as the book of mistakes, which is very, very meaningful. Meaning to say that this chronicles all of the mistakes the Jewish people made in the desert all of the complaints, all of the missteps of our journey through life. And I, I say that very pointedly, our journey through life, because the Rebbes say that each one of us in our own lives has also 42 stops, which parallels on a micro level this macro process. So in other words, just to review so you all understand what I'm saying, there were 42 stops on our way from Egypt to Israel. That was a microcosm. That was in miniature, going from exile to redemption. In other words, that's a, that's a portrait of all of human society, human civilization, human history. And all of us have 42 individual stops, which means that we are living out that same process of exile to redemption in our own personal lives as well. And that all of these things are parallel. You see, everyone's looking for the unified field theory. The unified field theory is that thing which shows the same laws, the same gravitational laws, and the same laws of physics apply to small bodies as to large planets and solar systems. Because they feel like there has to be one unified theory which explains all movement. We have that. It's called the Torah. Because you can see this with the number 42, that each one of us in our individual lives is going through the same motions and movements as we went through in a, as our people in history, as we are going through as an entire world from exile to redemption. And that they all line up. They all line up. And I'll tell you something really kind of, this I don't say with an asterisk, even though I'm drawing from popular culture, okay? But just, I, I think, a very interesting little quirk. And I, 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 I can't confirm this. This is my speculation, but let me just share it with you anyway. There's a, there's a popular series of books, um, extremely popular at a certain point, but, but um, it's still, you know, beloved, uh, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the... To the, to the galaxy, right? 
or to the universe, to the galaxy, yeah. So um, by Douglas Adams, who I actually had the privilege of of meeting at one point, Uh, but I didn't ask him this. And um, at one point, one of the characters says to another, what is the meaning of life? And the answer that he writes, and he wasn't Jewish as far as I know, you ready for this? The answer that he puts down is 42. Now, I highly doubt he is aware of these thoughts that we've been sharing here. And this is, again, my speculation, but I just offer it to you. I think because he was a comedy writer and these were comedic uh, works, my suspicion is that he was trying to come up with something completely random and absurd, that he was trying to come up with the most absurd, illogical, random answer. And he said 42. And yet what I think is so fascinating is that in his attempt to show the ultimate of randomness, he actually was proving the ultimate order that exists. (laughs) Which means even the perception of randomness is subservient to the greater order. Anyway, so so moving forward, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to say it in a completely different way this week, okay? Maybe a more far-reaching way, I hope. And to give you a bit of imagery, to allow you to kind of wrap your mind around the, the big picture, the really big picture. I'm talking about from the beginning of creation till the end and our role in it. Okay, Wouldn't it be nice to have one little piece of imagery which accomplishes all that? Okay. So let me suggest the following to you. <clears throat> and that is the imagery of um, a zipper. Okay? Imagine a zipper going from side to side, not up and down like on a piece of clothing, but from side to side. Okay, like on a, like how you do with a uh, a suitcase, for instance. Okay, but you don't don't imagine the suitcase, just the zipper right now, just going side to side, laid out horizontally. All right. So, <clears throat> so before we go into that piece of imagery, let's just take one step back, so you 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 understand how I'm using this. You see, the the big question that everyone asks, even if they're not able to articulate it, and and I feel like if I ever get a chance to go on national television and I'm given 30 seconds to share one thought, Mm -hmm. I, I believe it will be this thought, okay? Which is, everybody wants to know, if there's a God, and God is good, why is the world so messed up? And this is a question that everyone has to be able to answer. And thank God there is a very, I think, extremely satisfying, very simple answer to this. And it comes actually from, from uh, the Medrash, from Breshis Rabbah. Okay, so this is an ancient Jewish explanation of everything. Okay? And it's the following that the great mistake that everyone makes is that they think that God finished creating the world. 
And you know what? If God did finish creating the world, and this is the world he made, I am first in line to list my complaints and my objections. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing you out of the way to get first in line to register my complaints, okay? But that's not what's going on. That isn't what's going on. This world is not finished yet. It's not finished. We haven't completed it yet. And that's actually why we're here. That's what God created us to do, to be partners with Him in finishing the entire world. That's what this whole life is. And the tools that we use to do it are the mitzvot. It's the Torah and the mitzvot. That, that's what we're doing. So, so now imagine, what did I say? I said that this number 42, right, is, is, is a summation of our lives, of our own lives' journeys. It's a summation of historically what we went through, and it's the overall picture of where we're heading toward the end, okay? And it hit me <clears throat> that 42 is actually a very interesting number because it's 7 times 6. 7 times 6 is 42. So what is 7 and what is 6? And then we're going to get to the zipper, okay? What happened at Mount Sinai? If you look at the passages, what it says in the Torah itself is that heaven came down to earth. Heaven and earth came down. And the blueprint, the mitzvot, the blueprint was revealed. Okay? So seven represents Shabbos. We know Shabbos is the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. We also know that the Sabbath represents a taste of the ear of perfection. Because that ear of perfection that we're heading toward is the day it's called Yom Shakulo Shabbos. The day that will be all Shabbos. So seven represents perfection. And we talk about the, seven, the seventh millennium, the seven thousandth year, which is the era of perfection. Okay? So seven represents perfection. That's heaven. Six represents the work days of the week. Because we work for six days and we rest on the seventh. And so the human dynamic, the great flowchart, if you will, that's operative in this world for all of history, till we get it right anyway, is the following. It's to bring heaven down to earth. In other words, to bring the seven down to earth. And we do that by being good to each other, right? This reveals the perfection which is here. And when we do that, we bring heaven down to earth. We reveal all the goodness that's here through our actions. That's bringing heaven down to earth. By keeping the Sabbath, the seventh day, we reveal godliness in this world. That's one dynamic. The other is to take the six, which represents earth, all of the work that we do during the six days, and to bring it up to heaven. So in other words, we're bringing the above to the below, heaven down to earth, and we're taking the physical and elevating it to the spiritual. So how do we do that? 
For instance, what's more physical than eating? So we eat kosher food, right? That, that sanctifies the food, that elevates the food. We, we don't cheat in business, right? That takes the most, you know, here and now interactions and we lift them up. We only speak good things. We don't try to slander other people, right? So all of this is a transformation of the physical into the spiritual, okay? And there, of course, at least 613 examples of this, right? But what you have is this level of seven interacting with this level of six. We're bringing heaven down to earth and earth up to heaven. This is the divine flow of reality. And that seven times six is 42. This is our journey through life. Now, let me show it to you on the level of the zipper, okay? Because if you, again, picture it going horizontally, like a suitcase or whatever it is, what God did was he just put the two parts together in the very beginning. You know, like, you probably have a very clear visual memory of, like, when you're a little kid or when you're helping little kids, just making that connection on the bottom and then how satisfying it is for the kid to pull it up, you know? So God makes that connection. What is that initial connection? That's the human being. That's what it, when it says that the whole world was, it was, was, was created for the human being. Why do, we why do we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, which is the celebration of the creation of the entire world, on the sixth day of creation? Do it on the first day of creation. Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation because that's when human beings were made. What's a human being? It's a piece of heaven married to a piece of earth, right? It's the soul and the body in one unit. So the creation of the human being, that's the beginning. That's like, that's that initial zipping together. And now what's our job? Pulling that zipper. And what happens when you pull the zipper? You bring the above to the below. You bring heaven down to earth and you bring the below to the above. You take the physical and you bring it up into a place of spirituality. And you create a unity. And the end of that zipper is the completion of creation. That's the level of 42 when we get to the end. So that's what we're doing. We're pulling that zipper, you know? That's what it is. We're marrying heaven and earth. That's what we're doing. So, so like I said, this 42, remember the name of this book is Bab Midbar, which is Bez Mem 42 Davar, things. Right? This whole process of the 42 my Rebbe called it the book of mistakes. And so, that's because it's not easy. <laughs> that's because it's a process. That's because we make mistakes. And God created us as imperfect. And so if God, from the outset, understood that we were going to make mistakes, 
we also have to understand that we make mistakes. But we have to understand that really more important than not making mistakes, more important than not making mistakes is to keep on going. To keep moving forward. To not stop moving forward. Even amidst the mistakes. And if you think that there's a contradiction between making mistakes and somehow being worthy, there isn't one. And perhaps the most poignant example of that comes right in the beginning of the book of mistakes, of Sefer Bamidbar, which is where God is counting us. And if you look at the Rashi, I don't know if it's right here or someplace else, but it, it applies to here. Rashi says, if you look, God is counting us and he's counting us. He keeps on counting us. Why? And they say, because we're so precious to him, because he loves us so much. And so, so if you ask yourself the question, am I still precious to God after all the mistakes that I've made? What's the very first thing that's happening in that book? He's counting you because he loves you so much. So in terms of our own limitedness and our own perfectionism and our own striving to be better, there can be a contradiction between whether we're worth anything and whether we're perfect or whether we keep on making mistakes, but that contradiction doesn't exist in God's eyes. You know? And you know what? As much as I want you to like me, I want God to like me more. And I know one of the ways to get God to like me more on some levels for you to like me too, because it says, who does God love? The person that other people love. But that's more of a guideline, you know? You can also be lovable and, and imperfect. That's, that's all of humanity, basically. So, so Hashem should bless us that we should continue to be able to reveal all the beauty that's in the world right now. That's, that's, that's what it means to bring heaven down to earth. You know? I, I once heard someone say, in the name of Rebbe Nachman, that if you do something... If you do a favor for someone and the person is really, the person who does the favor is really kind of doing it in the highest, most beautiful way, the person who receives the favor will say, thank God. It's, it's consistent with another thought that I heard, which I really love. It's kind of complicated how we arrive at it, so I'll just cut to the bottom line which is that the Jewish notion of beauty is not one's physical form, but that, that, that true beauty is creating a transparency out of yourself so that people can just see heaven through you. And that somehow you just become this window through which God becomes more revealed in the world. And that's the true definition of Jewish beauty. So this is the idea of bringing heaven down to earth. Just being someone who does good things for other people in a beautiful way. And then to combine that with the ability to take your physical needs 
and to find a more beautiful way to express them. And this is, the Torah has endless advice on how to do this. Endless advice, literally endless advice. You're hungry, how to eat, where to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. You know, there, there is no shortage of advice of, of how to take one's physical needs and to beautify them and to put them in rhythm with, with, with heaven. And so by doing that, we lift up all of our physicality in this whole world and we bring it up while we're simultaneously bringing heaven down to earth. And this is the zipping up of creation. This is the job that all of us are going through. And we should see tremendous success soon as humanity becomes more and more aware, not through ignorance or superstition, but through great knowledge, how omnipresent and how awesome God is and how much he has his hand in absolutely everything.